the Triathlon Show 368. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dan Bigham. Dan is a performance engineer at Ineos Grandiers. He's the founder of Watchshop, and he's uh, the former World Hour record holder, uh, where he did 55.548 kilometers. And in this interview, we discussed that hour record, uh, the preparation and training that he did, the testing, the aero stuff, all of that. We also talk about the Sub-7 project that he was heavily involved in and just a good general discussion about the world of aerodynamics, equipment, listener questions, uh, what have you. Before that, though, uh, this week will be my final reminder to take the Death Triathlon Show survey that I'm running. I will take it down in about a week from when this episode goes up. So now is the time to complete it if you haven't already. You can find a link in the show notes, in the episode description on your podcast app, or directly on scientifictriathlon.com. The goal of this survey is to help me improve the podcast and take it in the direction that the listeners desire. So it really is a chance for you to directly influence where the podcast will be going in the future. And I would love to get the feedback from as many listeners as possible before we get into the interview with dan big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that create sports nutrition products including fueling and hydration products and they help you use them effectively through a range of free tools services and content the fuel and hydration planner on their website is a one-stop shop for figuring out an effective race hydration and fueling strategy for you it's free and super easy to use it only takes a couple of minutes to answer a handful of questions and then you get a detailed simple and effective race plan they also offer free video consultations and as a listener of the podcast you can get 15% off your first order of the range of electrolyte and carbohydrate products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. If you want to go faster in the water then look to Roka's range of wetsuits. From the entry level to the top of the line wetsuits all of them come with arms up technology and exceptional quality and comfort in the water. Roka's trisuits work perfectly together with the wetsuits as they too come with arms of technology to really maximize your shoulder mobility for the swim and on the bike and run they are optimized for aerodynamics and comfort. Roka's range of sunglasses and prescription glasses is also packed with innovation with patented technologies such as the Geeko anti-slip technology. They are ultralight and have excellent optical properties. Visit roka.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your order. Now without any further ado, here's my interview with Dan Bigham. Welcome back to That Traffle Show, Dan. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good as well. Thank you. Um, most listeners, I'm sure, will know who you are. But uh, for those that don't, uh, let's start with a, with a brief introduction. Who are you? Uh, okay, I am the performance engineer at Ineos Grenadiers uh, World Tour Team. I'm also the founder of Watchshop. I am now the former World Hour record holder. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah, I guess an athlete as well as as all of that at the same time. Yeah, was it uh, was was it the briefest stint that anybody ever held uh, the hour record, or has there been periods before where somebody took it from another holder uh, within an even shorter time frame? I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I might have to check back, but I think Alex Dowsett held his for less because Bradley took it from him about a month or so later. Remember correctly. I'll have to check that one, but I think it was pretty close. Maybe he was like 38 and I was 50. 
Uh, yeah. But one, one fact is uh, I held it for longer than Liz Truss held her premiership of the of the of being prime minister. So I'll take that yeah. as a positive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly positive. Um, since we started talking about that, um, in case some listeners haven't been following that, when did you set your hour record? What did you do? And then uh, Filippo Ganna took it. Uh, what did he do just to, to get some stats out there? Okay, I took it on the 19th of August, 2022. I did 55.548 kilometers. And then Filippo took it from me on the 8th of October, and he did 56.792 kilometers, so another 1.2 and a bit kilometers on top. Yeah, well, we can. This is a bit different than the order that we that we have in our questions document, but but let's let's just continue talking about the hour record here. So, um, can you tell us more about when when did you make the decision to uh, to go for it, basically, and and how did the preparation go from that moment on until race day? So the decision to actually go for it came pretty soon after my British hour attempt back in 2021. Uh, so that was when I rode 54.723 to take Bradley Wiggins' British record. Um, so it was the day after Joss did, did the world hour record attempt and took the, the women's hour record. So that was kind of solidifying the, that I wanted to go and do it and then it was possible. And then it was about putting everything putting all my ducks in a row, as it were. So getting onto, onto the water whereabouts program, um, finding, finding another 350 meters or whatever, uh, I needed back then. So it was, it was quite a, quite a fun process though, to be honest. I think the, the key really was joining Ineos, Ineos Grenadiers, uh, and the support that, that they gave me, the complete backing. That was always a discussion point. Obviously, Filippo wanted to go for the, for the world hour record attempt, uh, and myself too. So it, it became, Quite a nice, nice project that tied in everybody really within Ineos Grenadiers, all the partners, uh, coaches, uh, the support staff, performance support, etc. So it was, uh, yeah, a big old project, but it, it was obviously quite successful at the end, and not just from from breaking the records, but everything within the team, the generation of, of knowledge uh, to, to then apply to the road to, to make other people go fast. When when did you get really down into the nitty gritty of? thinking about okay where do you get those uh those last few hundred meters and uh, yeah how, how to do that and when did you start actually training specifically for the event from the moment that you actually decided to go for it so finding of the distance i think that is just something that i naturally do day in day out thinking about stuff like this um it's not in some respects it is a formal process and you have brainstorming sessions and discussions but some of it's just informal just sitting mulling things over reading different things whether it's on internet twitter books speaking to people just ideas come along and then as well just trying to appreciate exactly where my losses are and how i can move those forward i think i'm, I'm always thinking on the the energy outside how can i reduce my drag whether it's raw resistance aerodynamics drive training efficiency etc it's um i guess where my passion lies but then joining in the it opened a lot of doors on the other side of the equation, putting more energy in that, okay, I, I focus on, don't get me wrong. I, I do train. Uh, I try and train as much as, as feasibly possible, as efficiently as possible. Uh, but having a lot of intelligent people, I guess my, my equivalents in the, in the world of nutrition and physiology coming to, to the party and having all great ideas of how I can either increase the amount of power I have or increase the ability to produce that power in more extreme conditions. I don't think anyone really gave credit to how extreme a condition the hour record is. And that's not just from holding the position and having to ride that power steady state, but it's also things like thermal physiology. And I talk about it quite a bit. 
but it, it really is a critical performance determinant for the hour record. So my training in the specific sense, probably, well, I guess my primary focus for the year was always the hour records. I didn't ever kind of switch from, oh, I'm training towards this road race or that time trial through to the hour record. It was always a the primary goal so everything was always tailored towards that but in earnest it was probably late may early june so after the sub seven sub eight i went to grenchen and we did a, a full dress rehearsal so everything at that point as best as we could make it whether that was our pre-cooling strategies nutrition pacing strategies best equipment etc uh, and that was all behind closed doors kept quite quiet but i broke uh campanart's hour record there in training by just over half a lap so that kind of cemented it as we're definitely going to go and do this but also taught us a huge amount of how to prepare even better so the the finer details to really optimize them and to to yeah continue to to improve and obviously between between june and, and august so just over two months we found just over 300 meters uh, in a multitude of different ways it's not easy to ever say it was just this it was just that i think if you go back to say my october record to this year, the 800 meters I found is probably give or take 50-50 in, in drag and fifty and the other 50% in in energy in. Uh, but it's it's hard to ever entirely attribute it to one specific area. Um, but it's yeah, obviously yeah. It, it proved successful. Uh, as a so can, can you share the numbers uh, from from your British record, for example, the power you held and and the the, the world record? Uh in a word, no, I can't because I don't have them, which is quite a frustrating thing in the sense I, I did not ride with the power meter for either of the record attempts, primarily because the power meter options that I had increased my drag and I prefer to go further than know how I achieved that. So all I can ever tell you is a is a watts to CDA value. Yeah. And then obviously you can reverse calculate what your power is. I have a very good idea of what my CDA was for all of those attempts going into them. So Give or take, actually, my power didn't improve a huge amount from my October attempt to my August attempt. So from the British to the world, maybe a handful of watts, really. But what did change is the fact that we could create a, a lower drag scenario, so higher temperature being the primary one and higher humidity, but still put out the same power. So effectively, it's putting out more power, the same power in a more extreme condition, which is give or take the same as putting out more power in the same conditions. It doesn't matter because the speed increases. Um, that's not to say I wouldn't like more power and we definitely trained towards that, but it was, as I came in, it was more about the preparation in high humidity and high temperature and being able to tolerate that. So, you know, power terms, probably somewhere in the region of 350 to 355, probably on the higher end of that, which puts my CDA low one fives um, for the, for the entire hour. Uh, it was probably lower than that for the first, well, definitely would have been lower than that for the first 30, 35, 40 minutes. And in all of our practice runs, whether that's myself or Filippo, we know that your CDA starts to drift up in the last 5, 10, 15, even 20 minutes, depending on how your pacing strategy is. So it's 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 never as low as you can achieve in, say, a 2K or a 4K test run. It's um, it's a harder thing to sustain over the entire hour. And that, that was one thing that we we built around our pacing strategies, our coping strategies. Everything was around delaying that drop-off later and later and later. So keeping core temperature lower, but also keeping general fatigue as low as possible until later on in the effort. So you're in more of a challenge state and you can focus more on executing good position, good line, um, and just getting everything out of the tank without exploding and falling apart. Because when you fall apart, things go 
go downhill very quickly. Your power obviously drops off, but your position gets worse. So you're kind of doubly done over. You may be five or 10 watts down, but you're probably going to lose another five or 10 watts in aero. And then suddenly uh, your speed really slows down and then your optimal cadence is, is not what it, it should be. And um, it becomes pretty grim pretty quickly. So a lot of what we were trying to do was, was push that breaking point back as far as possible. Mm. And wh- when you say there about the en- environmental conditions, the uh, the temperature and the humidity is uh, that being different from your October attempt. Um, is that is that also something that is different compared to the previous world records that have been set? Did you go more to the extreme with temperature and humidity to to optimize drag or minimize drag that way? So I think Campanart struggled because the velodrome he did it at has drastically fast acceleration of temperature so he started quite early in the morning and i think he saw like a three degree swing across his hour if i remember correctly he did i think it was either him or some somebody in his team sent me the data on it and it was it was quite scary actually because you can't control temperature very easily at least not in that velodrome it's easy to do in grenchen it's very well insulated the the problem then actually becomes when it gets too hot how do you cool a velodrome down <laughs> it's um opening doors at the right time of night which uh, was yeah quite a fun fun project for Johnny but I think we were on the safer side compared to say Bradley Wiggins they had a high uh, pressure wave I think it was something like the worst pressure for an hour record anyway in 10 years in London at the time so they compensated by putting the temperature up which is probably one of the worst things they actually could have done so you see quite a big drop in gross efficiency as your core temp rises so doing what you can to mitigate that is quite important but obviously there's a there's a balancing act because if you drop your temperature and drop the humidity, then the air density goes up and you don't go as fast in the same amount of power. So it's trying to walk that tightrope as close as you can. So pushing it up as high as is possible and doing the, the training to adapt to it. But uh So so yeah. what was the temperature that you that you had during your attempt? I was twenty seven point three on average. And mm. my humidity was I think fifty two, fifty three percent on average. Um and I think if you go back to last year, I was 25, I think, 25 and a half degrees Celsius uh, and about 40, 45% humidity. So it's not not drastic. You're talking a few degrees difference in wet bulb temperature, but that's quite still quite significant. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned some pre-cooling strategies. Can you tell us more about that and also what other acute and also training slash adaptation strategies you used to be able to deal with that temperature? Yeah, so I can't give all the finer details in the pre-cooling. There's, there's quite a bit of cool uh, science in there, but at the end of the day, it's a competitive advantage for the team. So I kind of have to be a bit careful. Yeah. But uh, we, from a training perspective, doing a huge amount in the paint suit. People probably saw that in some of our videos. That was an idea that came from, from Core. Uh, so Chris at Core was basically seconded to the team for that period into both the hour records and had a lot of good ideas uh, and built a very, very good model actually around effectively evaluating where all your different cooling capacity comes from and then how you can influence all those different parameters and what genuine impact on performance that will have. So quite literally tying in, tying how much ice you eat in a slush before to how much your power will increase and therefore your distance increases, which is really, really nice to be able to link those two because even though we know there's a causative effect, it was really, really good to have uh, an objective number put into that. So then around pre-cooling, a lot of it really comes down to keeping as cold as you can before the record. You obviously want some warm-up just from a, a psycho psychosocial kind of side, but also muscle temperature needs to be slightly elevated. Uh, but we tried, did, tried to do as minimal as possible to keep core temp as low as possible. 
uh, because you will warm up quite quickly once you once you start riding. Then at the same time, having a negative split strategy means you're not so worried about having a an intense warm up because you're going to roll out and be riding probably somewhere in the region of twenty to thirty watts below threshold for the first few minutes at least. So even though it's it's sort of sweet spot area, it's manageable. You can roll into it and, and build into it. Uh, and then beyond that, a few little details, I guess, things like putting my helmet in the freezer. Um, not not going to be make any drastic difference, but it, it's definitely nice to be on the start and feel like a, you've got a cold head. Um, and then a few things around nutrition, uh, using menthol, SIS of, of push forward on that and, and the impacts of it. Again, it's not, it's not going to have a physiological effect directly, but psychologically you feel cooler. And I think your body responds to how it perceives it to be rather than how it actually is. So if you feel like you're cooler, you will behave accordingly. And a lot of it is just making sure that you keep your head on for as long as possible. If your head falls off halfway through, it's pretty much game over. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, pacing there must be hugely critical, but at least that's something that is very easy to control uh, on the velodrome in those circumstances when you when you can get your splits. Um, but obviously you have to have trained for it and know that know pretty much exactly what you can do and where you're crossing the line, I assume. Yeah, I think that's the positive thing with the negative split. Uh, to a certain extent, it's hard psychologically because you're going into it knowing you've got to ride harder at some point, but you can push into it and find that limit. So rather than thinking I can sustain, let's say an arbitrary number, 55.5, going out at that and seeing what happens, you're kind of waiting and waiting and waiting for that for it to bite. Whereas the other way is to push, to go out a bit easier and then push on and find where that limit is yourself. And I think good time trialists who are well attuned to their body can find that and sit on that limit. But it just means you, in that early phase where you don't, your sensations don't cap, don't really align with the true physiological state, then you are in a safe place. You're not, you're not pushing yourself further than you need to. You, you have a bit in your back pocket and, Felipe was, was, I think, he, yeah, he brought in quite quite well to that. And it it doesn't actually impact your, your total distance all that much. People look at it and think, well, there's non, non-linearity to aerodynamic drag. Therefore, to ride so much faster at one point and so much slower at another must cost you a huge amount. But actually, it's it's very minimal when you run the numbers. So for me, it cost me about 12 meters versus a completely flat split. You think, well, 12 meters is nothing. That's like 0.2 of a watt in power production. And I definitely got more than that in keeping my gross efficiency higher through lower core temperature, keeping my line better, my position better, etc. So it's a complete order of magnitude difference. And I think um, people have just looked at it a little bit wrong without getting the numbers on it first. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And when you mentioned uh, Chris from Core, just for listeners, that's the uh, Core body temperature sensor, which is a non-invasive um, sensor. Did you use that a lot throughout your preparation period in, in training to kind of try to adapt and see how, how you reacted to, to training and how, you're, how, how you could perform with different uh, core temperatures? Yeah, I've used a core since before I joined Ineos Grenadiers, to be honest. Uh, the first time we used a core sensor, so the, yeah, the non-invasive, effectively a heat flux sensor on your skin, uh, we, it was back in February 2021, where myself and Joss did some practice hour runs on Manchester Velodrome. And we had other skin temperature sensors and, and a core body temp pill as well, just to try and correlate the entire thing and understand what was happening. And that that was the, the watershed moment when we realized the importance of thermal physiology, because my core temp was very hot, was very high, sorry, when I began the hour. And 
pretty much the moment I touched over 40, things start to go uh, go downhill very quickly and I exploded um, quite quite dramatically. I was on pace to 40 minutes and then it all went downhill. So yeah, I've used it uh, for, I guess, firstly to understand the importance of it and then secondly for the training side. I think once you understand the sensations of what different core temperatures feel like, it's not an, a strong necessity. It definitely helps to guide you a bit like a power meter in the first instance. If you've never had one before, and then suddenly you get one. You don't know what zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four feel like. But then over time, if you've used it for a few years and you've done the sessions, you can probably go out, go out and do a zone two ride and be pretty close on the power. Or you could do a VO2 max effort and get pretty pretty bang on without looking at the power numbers. And it's much the same with the core sensor. It really helps to guide you in the first instance and understand how far to push and how not to, not to go too too far, especially with those first few sessions people can uh, – can box themselves quite quickly so i used it for all my preparation and then obviously during the the record itself to collect the data and understand what happened to again continue to influence Filippo's record yep and uh have have you analyzed the uh, i mean I'm, that's a stupid question i'm sure you have <laughs> analyzed it <laughs> in detail um but uh, were, was there anything in, in your review of the event of the attempt that uh that did not go to plan like did you leave anything on the table or was it as perfect as you could have expected it to be really i wish i did have more things to say to do this better but genuinely it Nyon went perfectly there's, there's such fine details of like maybe i could have done this slightly better but I'm, I'm splitting hairs literally like a few meters. So for example, in my last five minutes, I played it a bit safe in the, in the sense of I knew I had it, not in the bag, but I knew I was, I was going to break the record as long as I stayed on my bike. So I knocked it back on my line in the sense of not riding as close to the black as I had done for the rest of it, just so I didn't hit a pad and have a puncture or do something stupid. And okay, it won't cost me a huge amount, maybe a couple of meters a lap for 20 laps, so maybe 40 meters. But beyond that, honestly, the preparation, the run-in, Everything in the weeks running to it were <laughs> quite literally a military operation. And that's probably a reflection on Ben Williams, who's our integrated performance lead at, at Ineos. His background is is the military. He's, he was special forces and um, just is a very organized, logis- logical, objective person. And he puts plans in place and they just get executed very, very cleanly. And I think that was such a nice environment to be in because I'm used to having to try and be that person as well as the athlete, or at least historically, whereas to go into this, it was offloaded to the guys who were really, really good at that. And it meant that everything from the food I ate, what time I ate, when I trained, the sessions I did, um, even everything on my bike was sorted without me having to worry about it. And it's such a relief as an athlete just to go in and just step through the process and execute and not have to worry about the finer details. You can place complete trust in the people around you. And that, yeah, meant that, honestly, there's such such small things that maybe could have gone better that, yeah, I'm talking maybe best case, I might find 50 meters. So, um, yeah, I'm happy with the day, but it equally would be nice if I could find 1.2 kilometers somewhere, but I don't think uh, I don't think I left 1.2k on the table. Yeah, well, uh, that leads to the final question um, about the hour record, which is actually getting into the, the training. Like, can, can you describe a typical training week in terms of the the work I said you did and, and so on. I, I I don't think there was ever a typical week. I think my lifestyle doesn't really suit consistency of like, for example, going up and doing four weeks of the same, the same thing with a bit of progression. Uh, I would say the vast majority was, was on my turbo. Uh, so I used Le Monde revolution uh, just because you can match your inertia to the track pretty well. 
on my TT bike, do everything in the skis. That's not to say just the efforts. I mean, I'll happily sit three, four hours just in the extensions and get quite comfortable with that. Uh, most sessions I was tagging on between 30 minutes and an hour of heat. So get to the end, put the paint suit on, uh, get your core temp up to sort of 38 and a half or so and just sustain that. Uh, I was doing a reasonable amount of uh, sort of sweet spot into threshold efforts, broken hours. So things like um, 60 minutes where you do eight and a half minutes at just below threshold, minute and a half off and then step through. So as a negative split, so progress until the last eight and a half minutes is full gas and and above threshold. Uh, a lot of this as well was done at altitude. So I live in Andorra um, at just over 1500 meters to so not super high altitude, but enough that there's one, a stimulus and, and two, an impact on performance. So it's obviously making sure that you keep keep everything uh, within range and don't go too hard up here too soon. Uh, and then once I was in Grenchen for the sort of eight, nine days out, I did a fair amount of track training, to be honest. A lot of it was aerotest, even though it's quite late in the day. These things are always coming. And even down to the fact that I hadn't tested the full printed bioracer suit, everything had always been plain just because it, it saves time in the prototyping process. But I had that na- nagging worry in my mind of maybe if they've printed it, it's slower. And just things like that of like, okay, we definitely need to test and check that's fine and just get all, all the data that we needed to, to tick off all the final points uh, once we got there with with the final bike, the final equipment, etc. Um, we did some longer efforts as well, just making sure that I was uh, able to replicate the first sort of 15, 20 minutes. So getting going out at, at race split, which is below threshold, through the 15 minutes and then give it a nudge at the back end, just empty the tank and have some fun. But there wasn't any any super structured sessions, I guess, in that respect. It wasn't like I was going out and doing six hours every single day or everything was super regimented on the turbo. It was fitting around the work that I had to do and the tests that I had to do and where I was in, in the world, really. How, I, I know that you can't necessarily split it up into a neat seven-day weekly period, but but if you would average it out uh, somehow, what do you think or do you know your weekly volume uh, of training and and also um, if you average out number of specific workouts like the ones you described with threshold uh, sweet spot and so on how many of those would you fit in uh, you know to be in a week so probably around two specific sessions a week um, they would always have a bit of volume tagged on afterwards and again probably even a bit of, of heat stimulus as well at the same time so total volume over the week good question in time probably between 16 and 20 hours i think over the entire year i averaged i think it was 16 or 17 hours last year or sorry this year uh, at least the to my end of season break so i'm not i'm not doing super volume by any yep. respect but um when i take when i have the opportunity to i definitely grab it with both hands and, and try and do a little bit more but on the whole, I think it's more about just being consistent week in, week out. Yeah. Um, but I do tend to vary. I don't have a weekly structure in the sense of like I take Tuesdays off and Fridays off and Wednesday is my intervals day and Monday's the gym or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's just trying to trying to fit it all around all the different plans. Um, that was another thing, actually. Yeah, I was back in the gym at least once a week whenever I'm back home in altitude, um, just making sure I keep some strength stimulus in. I'm trying to increase that a little bit more now that I'm back on the track doing individual pursuit and team pursuit. Yeah. Um when when you did the non-specific sessions, the the rest of your training, did you try to hit a zone two in a five zone system? So a little bit of a higher aerobic stimulus, or or did you go as easy as 
as your legs felt like going off and being like comfortable in in zone one uh zone two and five zone system definitely i'm yeah. i'm one that probably pushes a bit higher towards yeah tempo um maybe even towards sap at points but i'd say definitely in in a five zone model into zone two and i'll do three at three to four hours straight through on the tt bike on the turbo maybe like a five minute break in the middle just to go to the toilet um i live in a ski resort which is great for the altitude but i honestly I, i'm not a fan of hills and i also don't like the wasted time of descending so if i climb for an hour i've got to descend for 15 or 20 minutes so if i'm doing a four-hour ride probably 25 percent of my time is wasted time and that really frustrates me because i'm quite time crunched so yeah i tend to do most of my training indoors on the on the trainer and yeah keep keep the keep it in a tight power band and yeah just crack it out and erg mode or uh sim mode uh so i'm on a le mans so it's it's free choice <laughs> there's no erg or sim on that oh, okay. um i do i have a kicker and i have a neo t2 as uh, 2t as well uh but i don't use them quite so much i really just prefer the feel of the le mans. so you can model it and figure out what its cda is crr drivetrain efficiency mass etc uh so not drivetrain efficiency uh Obviously, that's already in the drivetrain. Um, but it means that you can match your inertia to what you would get on on a velodrome or on a time trial, whereas it's harder to do on, or you definitely can't do it on the tax uh, because of, of how it is. Um, and on the kicker, you can't easily easily change those values. So, yeah, I think my neighbours probably hate me because Le Monde is not quiet. It's like a jet engine taking off, but yeah, I enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> Um, all right, and uh, I, I want to ask uh, a little bit about Sub Seven as well. I had your teammate uh, Jacob Tipper on, and uh, so so we're not going to go into great detail on this, but um, yeah, I just want to ask you for that event, what power did you hold? Did I say Sub Eight, Sub Seven, Sub Eight, uh, Sub Seven for you guys, and Sub Eight for uh, for the women? What power numbers did you hold, and uh, and also how? What kind of variability did you experience due to it being a team time trial where you spend some time on the front and some time uh, on the back? Okay, try to remember the number. I've opened up one of the analysis documents I had from one of our training sessions, which is quite interesting. So the the circuit we did it on was just over five kilometers long, but it basically is a big velodrome, two big straights and two two banked corners at the end. And we did a ten man team time trial, one lap turns calculate everyone's cda at every single position so we can figure out everyone's draft efficiency and then a cda at man one and then we could use that to, to figure out who, who we should ride in the team and also just um to get an idea of physically what is going to be possible to plug that into the model uh we wanted to give everybody power targets rather than than speed targets because we knew the wind was going to be quite variable and i think off the top of my head most of the guys we were between 410 and 450 on the front, depending on their CDA. So our CDAs varied from sort of basically 1.6 to some of the guys were sort of low 1.9s. So obviously that's quite a difference in power because on the flat surface, it's pretty much what's the CDA. Mm. So some of the guys are doing short turns. We, we broke it down into half laps or laps where I think only myself and Dowsett did full laps. Maybe John did for one or two turn. We varied it up depending on how we were feeling. And to be honest, I, I blew my doors off with about an hour to go. <laughs> I was going to take hanging on. I, I hadn't had, I know I had good prep. I'd come in from altitude and probably missed time that a little bit. But I also, during the week, I had to fly back for my sister-in-law's wedding. 
So I flew back in the night before, so I didn't get to bed until gone midnight. I know that's not ideal prep, but it's the way these things work out sometimes. So a late night and an early start and probably some mistimed altitude. And yeah, just was good for a few hours and then uh, pretty terrible for the last 45 minutes or so and leaned on the other guys. But we actually paced it pretty well. Um, we, we went out with a target of 55k an hour. I think people, uh, I remember originally when myself and Tipper ran the numbers and then mentioned it to Ali Brownlee, because obviously he was the original athlete that we were working with. And he was like, are you sure? You, you really think we do that? I'm like, mm, numbers say so. I don't trust the spreadsheet. We normally do. It should be all right. And we got there and started to run the numbers. And it, it did start to seem, seem possible, but we knew it was going to be that last hour when it all, all uh, either unfolds or just about holds together. And uh, the heat was probably the big factor for a lot of the guys. It was 30 degrees with basically no shade and basically no rest either. We we reckoned the fastest way was to keep all guys in the line at any given moment, not to rest them in, in retrospect. It was probably something we should have looked at in a bit more detail and maybe taking the opportunity to take a few guys out, rest them a bit better, cool them down. But from a power perspective, give or take, you were sitting at between 240 and 260 in the line. And then once you get into the, the top three guys, that would increase a bit. So you'd be at somewhere like high 200s then you're sitting at man two at kind of close to threshold and then you hit the front and you're riding close to vo2 um so yeah it's, and, and, re- and remind us when you when you were taking whole laps how how long was a lap just over six minutes so we were getting yeah. lap splits actually through the radio which is quite good fun to be honest because um <laughs> we were like just trying to chip away and get faster and faster and faster and i think alex at the fastest lap with about two or three laps to go God knows what numbers he did for that. I'd have to check back. But we did, uh, like I think, 58K an hour for a lap, wow. which was pretty awesome. I mean, it was grim in the wheels. And I think Joe, on the end of that lap, he was like, hold, because he was going off the back. And it was a bit unnecessary, but equally quite fun at the same time. Mm. And and well, do you know what your spikes were like when, when you had to accelerate to to get back onto the wheel when you were rotating? What kind of yeah, sprint or yeah, not sprints, but power spikes did you have to put out? It wasn't too bad actually, to be honest. No more than a few seconds at maybe mid four hundreds. So we were always changing on the banking, which meant yep. you got the, the advantage of a bit of height and the extra distance. So you never had to do a, a big strong acceleration, whereas if you change on the straight you're going to have to lose speed and then regain that speed and you can't store that energy through going up high and going up yeah. high. So that was just another reason of, of reducing yeah, the spikes of that. And to be honest, the line was quite smooth. There were moments, don't get me wrong, where you're having to respond, especially in the tailwind sections. If you, if It was a moment because the wind kept changing throughout the entire race. There were moments where it was headwind, tailwind on the straights. And if you came through the corner from the headwind section onto the tailwind section, obviously man one accelerates because suddenly the the force balance means that they need to be at a higher speed. But acceleration power is the same throughout the entire team. So as you accelerate, if if they're putting out 100 watts of acceleration power, so is everybody in the line. So obviously that acceleration phase is not so enjoyable. But the opposite is also true. As you come through the tailwind section back into the headwind, then basically you're coasting in the wheels. So it's hard to balance yeah. that out, but it's just the nature of how, how the physics plays out in an event like that. Yeah. And uh, if you were to do the event again with the same rules, uh, how, is there anything that you know already that you could do to go even faster? You mentioned considering maybe resting, resting the guys. Uh, anything else? Yeah, I think resting and cooling, probably more on the pre-cooling side. Again, from the hour record, probably learned a lot of that. We did do quite a bit of pre-cooling and things like the camelbacks down the front. They were already in the, fr- uh, in the fridge or the freezer. I think they were in the freezer, actually, yeah. 
before we started. So they were pretty cold when we began. But in the morning, it wasn't too bad. It was later in the day after we'd ridden for a couple of hours when it's 30 degrees. It's not so enjoyable. I don't think we could find a huge amount, to be completely honest. There were a few small things here and there that went wrong. Uh, but without getting more aero and having more power, then um, I don't think we executed poorly. I think we executed a really, really good, clean, clean ride. Mm, yeah. And uh, now, uh, moving a bit towards general aerodynamics topics, um, just checking through my list of questions. And some of these will be listener questions, but maybe I'll take my own questions first uh, to make sure I get through those uh, <laughs> selfishly. Uh, first, in terms of position on the bike, do you have a current view on what works and what doesn't or do's and don'ts? I mean, one obvious do that I know you're going to say is you always have to be testing things. <laughs> but but are there any generalities that you can draw? Yeah, I'll definitely start with that caveat. Test, test, test. It's like the only way you'll truly find out if something's faster. I, I, I can give advice and I definitely do. And there's some things that, that tend to work on most, but not always with everybody. Um, is there trends? So... There are a few things. I would say around the cockpit, trends towards narrower is predominantly faster for most riders. It's not always the case. There are some outliers, but I, I see often people making concessions that I think are unnecessary, especially in triathlon. They say, oh, I, I need need wider armrest to breathe or for comfort. But again, I think that's a concession that you shouldn't make because comfort just comes down to you spending the time to adapt whether that's through gym work to strengthen your upper body your shoulders your neck etc to support it or time spent in position um and then breathing i just flat out just don't believe it full stop i, I don't see i haven't seen any meaningful data that shows any impact on narrowing your armrests on breathing and therefore power production uh, i think that's just an old wives tale that, that hangs around within the sport um is there any other major trends i think start, people have recently started to go for higher hand positions i'd say that's probably is a trend that mostly works for most people but it still is one that you need to test and be confident on uh it depends a lot on neck flexibility as well if you can go higher stack height higher hand position and keep a low head position then you're probably in a better place but not necessarily just bringing your hands up for the sake of it, which I see a lot of people do when nothing else actually seems to change. I think high end position tends to relax your neck and shoulders a lot more to enable you to hold a lower head position, which is where the gains tend to come from. So it's understanding why something's faster as opposed to just mirroring and copying what other people do. Um, what else? I think quite often, at least before joining Ineos, when I was working a lot more with the public, you would see people come in who've been to bike fitters and certain bike fitting systems really work on putting a rider in what they would consider a biomechanically efficient position as opposed to a fast position, because there is a trade-off in biomechanics to aerodynamics. I would say that biomechanics tend to be a window, an optimal window, whereas aerodynamics tend to be more or less of an optimal window, more of a precise, this is faster and this is slower. And you Key see it quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a it's a small slither to optimize within, whereas in biomechanics, your body is quite adaptable. It's not to say that there isn't a biomechanically optimal position. It's just that your physiology will adapt to the different stimulus you apply. If you ride in a position that a certain bike fitting system says isn't optimal, your body will start to adapt and improve and be able to apply power. I think you have to be very careful, though, at the same time to not put yourself in a situation where you expose yourself to injury. 
So, for example, lower saddle heights can can load you in ways that can cause ankle and knee issues if you don't have the support and the strength to, to enable you to ride that position. But again, that comes back to good preparation, good the right gym work, being flexible in the right ways, not having any niggles, injuries, issues, impingements, etc. And it's easy for me to sit and say this because in Ineos, we've got staff whose literal full-time job is to make sure riders are prepared for these kind of scenarios so that we can optimize them. And it's very hard if you're Joe Public and your support network is maybe yourself and your partner and, and Google, like for me to sit and say, you need to make sure that you're strong in all these areas and then you can deviate from what a biomechanically optimal position is. Um, I don't want to be the person sitting here who are telling somebody to do that and then they go and get injured. I would say try and get good advice, try and understand where your limitations truly are and understand both sides of the equation, the power you're trying to put in as well as the aerodynamics and you can try and make an informed decision therefore on where you should push. Yeah. Are there any general recommendations regarding having a more or less uh, elongated position? Uh, I think there's probably two two distinct positions in that, a very tucked position, a very stretched position. So you can probably think of them in extreme cases as the Boardman Superman and the Abri egg tuck. And with the tuck, you're basically eliminating the upper arm from from uh, or at least putting it in the wake of the helmet. Uh, so your your drag reduces on the upper arm, which is one of the, the big drag uh, producers on your on your body. Hence, why there's a lot of development around the the fabrics uh, or layers of uh, fabric on your upper arm. Whereas the Superman basically gets rid of your upper arm as a <laughs> Uh, to the onset flow nigh on completely if if your upper arm's parallel to the flow then obviously there can't be any drag beyond skin friction produced there or no pressure drag produced there uh within current rules at least for the uci you don't really have much wiggle room either way so you tend to end up sitting in the middle and optimizing um, but it, again it comes down to a test 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 some people tend to to perform a lot better in that that tight scrunched short tuck position uh, and that seems a lot more commonplace for people like Remco Venapol. If you look at his position, he's the epitome of that. Uh, and then, yeah, others go to, towards the Superman. I think it's it's rarer, at least in the, the men's World Tour Peloton, because you can't achieve it within the regulations. Whereas in the women's World Tour Peloton, you can see it at least a little bit more commonplace. Uh, it's easy to achieve when you're smaller within the UCI regulations. And then if you go and look at the UK domestic scene, it's... It's fairly common to see very stretched out Superman positions. Kyle Gordon's probably a good example of it. He, uh, yeah, he looks <laughs> pretty close to Portman uh, in his Superman position um, on his TT bike. So they're, they're probably the two ways to go about it. I think, again, though, it's, it's very individual and you simply just got to test and find out what works for you in your scenario and then what's sustainable as well because neither position is particularly uh, comfortable in the first instance, I would say, but you can train to adapt it, but it, Depends where your strengths and weaknesses lie. Yeah, and um, any trends in terms of equipment? I think equipment now is going a, little, a lot, well, definitely a lot further beyond what it used to be in the case of aero profiling sections and calling stuff aero. I think people are now realizing that you need to be able to manipulate riders, move them into different positions, uh, and doing it quickly and efficiently as well. I think that's something that within Watchup we've always pushed for, the fa fast adjustment as well as the aerodynamics and trying to integrate both. There's no free lunch there. It's definitely hard to do. You can't have the perfect aerodynamic optimal setup and also all the adjustment in three axes. Uh, it's, it's, a really, it's a really hard challenge engineering-wise, but it's a fun one at the same time. So I think most equipment now that is fast is the one the equipment 
choices that enable you to move quickly into different positions um, and tend to move you a lot more. So things like high-sided armrests, for example, provide support, but also move you into the position that you need to be. Uh, similar with uh, yeah, aero extensions that are providing support on your forearm, so then you can relax a lot more. Uh, and then even things like Q-Factor that we've been looking at with our Kratos crank, we know it's, it's a meaningful improvement, uh, but it's very rare for cranks to, to go to those narrow Q-Factor Q factors. Uh, I think the sport in general has evolved around a set Q factor and people just run with it because Shimano, SRAM, Kampag have, have said that is the norm and then every bike designs around it, which becomes, a, again, a hard engineering problem to solve. How do you have a BB that's a set width but still narrow the Q factor, have enough heel clearance, etc.? cetera? Uh, but it's, yeah, it's one area that, that we've been, been pushing towards. So beyond that, equipment, <laughs> clothing and helmets, they're the two big ones. That's where the most improvements tend to come from. And again, optimizing at your speed, your position um, is is the big win there. And that's why as, as Ineos Grenadiers, we have so many different options, especially if you look at helmets now. We have four different helmets, two different visors. So we can really fine-tune rider by rider. And I think that's where the, the improvements really are coming from. That reminds me actually of something that I've been wanting to ask uh, regarding visors. Uh, is that something that's very individual that uh, for some riders you might go faster with a visor and vice versa? Some riders go faster without a visor. Yeah, I did this test with Canyon Shram back in 2017 or 2018. I think it was 2018. And yeah, it's very individual. Most I would say were faster with the visor, but wasn't always the case so yeah it's just one simply you've just got to test and there's no particular rhyme or reason as to why um just yeah you've just gotta just gotta test and find out and to us that's something we're trying to understand a lot more of as well rather than this black box of error testing it's faster or it's slower within the team really spending a lot of time with the cfd side to pinpoint say it's faster for these reasons and then we should manipulate it in this way and understand the flow structures rather than yeah the checkbox yes or no yeah yeah um so you mentioned already clo- clothing and helmet uh, being two very important areas to uh, to look at at optimizing in terms of equipment i have i have a list of a few different uh, pieces of equipment here i've excluded some of the ones that we talked about maybe in our previous episode and in other episodes like wheels and stuff which are quite obvious but uh, if you could yeah just maybe talk about roughly how how important prioritize these these items in terms of importance of uh, how much you can gain from optimizing them and this is in the context of non UCI rules so for triathletes so so the items that I have on the list here would be tri suits tires uh, calf guards shoes and uh, camelbacks down the front of the tri suit as a bit of a joker and another joker again from the sub seven uh, is the animoy uh, sailfish hydration system that is uh, the the little thing that we saw at the uh, sticking out from uh, from the back of the bikes okay how much to gain i guess it depends where you're coming from that's the the major one so tri suits if you went from say like a baggy sleeveless tri suit through to a well-fitted uh, short sleeve tri suit at let's say I don't know forty five k an hour. It's probably a bit of a stretch forty to forty five k an hour. We're talking percentage terms. You probably see somewhere in the region of five percent drag reduction. I think in that again, very individual, but that would be off the top of my head. I, I haven't done a back to back on that in many years. So trying to put the numbers off the top of my head of what we used to see in in sleeves versus not, it's it's quite scary actually. Uh, 
and especially nowadays, you still see people racing some top level races in sleeveless tri suits. And it blows my mind, honestly. Um, there's so much to gain from that area that five percent drag reduction is is massive I and mean, you could be even more it depends on the, on the size and shape of, of your arms um, and the position and the helmet you wear etc but yeah mm. at least go short sleeve and the right material and there's a huge amount to gain there and bikes i'll jump off, off the tires and go into calf guards quickly because that as well is is a big area it's um effectively cylinders in airflow are, are terrible and we're doing all we can to keep flow attached around the cylinder, hence why there's a lot of development and different fabrics and why one fabric doesn't perform the same as the other. They work with different size cylinders, different densities, different speeds. We optimize around a thing called Reynolds number, which effectively normalizes for all of them. And yeah, you can see a huge amount. Again, probably probably a bit less than 5%, probably somewhere in the region of probably 3% in calf guards, I would say. But it could be more. I have seen more in some scenarios, but on the whole, you're yeah, talking quite a big reduction in, in drag. So if you're, if you've got 200 Watts of drag, there's six Watts. Uh, if you're going faster, then obviously it's more, more power. Um, but in, yeah, in CDA terms, you'll probably yeah, reduce about 3% or so. And they're cheap. They're easy. Test a few different options, find what works for you. But for most people, it's, it's a sizable gain. Uh, shoes, probably less so depends on what you've got and the shape of them. I have seen some pretty terrible shoes, but on the whole, they're pretty close. You would, you would gain most from just covering them. So shoe covers tend to be tend to be a big win. There is a bit in shape, but I think for most triathletes, it's not something they have to overly worry about. It's where we're getting that, in the world of track that, cycling. That, that's that's interesting because I have actually tested this uh, tested shoes specifically against each other. Just one pair of what I would call standard uh, triathlon shoes, and then the bond zero plus shoes and i can't remember off the top of my head but the numbers were like pretty substantial i think in the region of 10 watts or maybe it was the classic seven to eight watts <laughs> uh, but some, something they're definitely more than five watts uh less than 15 watts difference but substantial i would say at 40 39 to 40 kilometers an hour yeah uh there was one one brand of shoes i'm not going to name name names that didn't perform all that well aerodynamically and we were pretty surprised um I guess it, it does depend on what you're comparing. Like if, if you go from a big scrappy triathlon shoe through to like a, a very nice aerodynamic shoe, like the Nimble Shoes or Giro Empires, um, there's quite a few suppressed aero even. There's there's a few that perform quite well that are close within say one or two percent of drag. That's where and I then, think the, that's where I think that a lot of triathletes, uh, including myself uh, a while ago, don't really realize how important it can be and there are a lot of those you know the regular shoes around so yeah maybe all of the aero shoes perform similarly but they might be a class above a lot of the shoes out there and and a lot of us don't really think about that they can be important yeah i think that's your test probably is more a reflection on how little i've tested all the different triathlon shoes i can recall maybe one or two times that people came in for tests with different triathlon shoes so uh it's not something i've personally looked at i, I didn't fancy um yeah, some big straps for my old record just so I can, can whip my shoes off really quickly at the, yeah. <laughs> at the end or yeah. something like that. But yeah, it, it's definitely a sensitive area. It's it's in very clean flow. Uh, but I just think equally, at, at least at the top end, there's not a huge amount between shoes. But if, you, if you're going towards the yeah, middle of the range or some of the, the triathlon-specific shoes, then yeah, I can expect there'll be, be a bigger delta there. Mm. Uh, tires in both air and roll resistance. Roll resistance to the big gains. That one's quite scary actually how, how big a difference it can make 
And there's a lot of roller data out there at the moment, different sources in the public domain. And to be honest, out in the real world, you, you probably even see bigger deltas than that. Roller data is only looking at hysteric losses. There's more to a tire than there is uh, just just rolling it on a drum. Um, what, so is, what is the best source for, because this is, uh, I've historically always looked to bicycle rolling resistance, but then I think this year, I believe AeroCoach did a big test where they used slightly different methodologies than with actual, with actually riding the bike or a rider on the bike at least, which was mm-hmm. a different methodology than bicycle rolling resistance, which um, was pointed out to me that that indicated that maybe that data would be more ecologically valid the error coach data and and when in some cases there were some discrepancies between which tires had uh, the best rolling resistance so what would you say is the best source for looking up that kind of information <laughs> that's kind of like asking what's better a velodrome test or a wind tunnel test <laughs> <laughs> um, so i think and maybe error coach can correct me if i'm wrong they're, they're using uh, a set of rollers so they have a rider riding two rollers maybe 100 mil in diameter measuring applied or calculating applied forces and measuring roller velocity and calculating CRR that way, which I, I believe is the Tom Einhalt method. Correct. Is that his name? Einhalt? Einhalt? Either way, I, I think um, he did quite a, quite a few tests on that back in the day. And then bicycle roll resistance is a 700 mil diameter um, checker plate drum, I believe, and then measuring torque applied. So they both have pros and cons. Uh, yeah, you, in some ways, having pedaling ride is better because the the contact patch forces will vary longitudinally, but then your contact patch shape is quite different on a 100mm roller as opposed to a 700mm roller. It's still curved. Ideally, you want a flat surface. It's very hard to do. They do it in motorsport. They have um, effectively doing it on treadmills. I've seen that being done as well. Uh, but again, you're primarily looking at hysteric loss there, and there is the damping loss. It's significantly harder to measure and put a value on, hence why... You can get different data on the road. On the whole, though, tires that are good hysterically are probably good at dealing with damping losses at the same time. Uh, I would say just look at both. I don't think they have wildly different discrepancies in the sense a sense of one tire is significantly faster than another, or that there's big differences. I think on the whole, they largely agree. Yeah, they largely agree. I think it's more about well, is this tire the best or the third best? So those kind of it's not if it's one. <laughs> the best or like middle of the range that's not what it's about and and i can't mm-hmm. remember probably the magnitude was quite quite small the magnitude of um, the delta between between them but yeah what yeah, what is your what is your experience from your testing what do you ride uh, if you need to go as fast as as possible let's say out, out on a road time trial <laughs> uh what did i ride this year so this year i was on the 5000 tt's what did I use? Last year, I rode uh, Corsa Speed 2.0 rear and a Michelin Power TT front. Uh, why so why would you off. Why would you have different tires on the front and rear? So different demands. Uh, roll resistance is slightly greater on the rear because you weight distribution. And also aerodynamics is pretty, or at least relatively unimportant on the rear, whereas on the front, it's very significant. And the difference played out that, at least for the courses I was riding at the time, the Michelin was a marginally faster front tire. But again, you, when you get all the data collected, it's you're splitting less than a watt here or there, and it's it's, it's all pretty close, really, at the top end. Have Have you ever considered or advised somebody to ride a narrower tire on the front than the rear? And is is that something that has any kind of significant difference compared to riding the same width on both? Yeah. Um, 
I'd say most most of my recommendations would be to go to a narrow tire on the front. It obviously depends on what, where you're coming from. Uh, but on the whole, the narrow tire is more aerodynamic. I think there used to be this 105 rule. I think it was Josh Portner that came up with it when they had tubs of a set size and a rim of a set size and they wanted a 5% difference between the two, which you don't really get nowadays because you're effectively, uh, well, with a clincher bead, you, you have a tangent or give or take a tangent and you have a spline of a set length. So it just changes the profile of the tire slightly. So a 23 and a 25 won't ever measure 23 and 25, but the actual profile of them will be different on the on the wheel. Uh, so yeah, typically narrow is, is faster aerodynamically, but slower from rolling distance. So it just comes down to to a trade-off. But on the whole, for most people who are going relatively quick, the aero wins out over the rolling resistance. But if you're on a slower course or a rougher course, then you would weight more towards the rolling resistance and less towards the aerodynamics. So when you had the Michelin and the Corsa, um, what were your tire widths width on those two? 23 front, 25 rear. All right. Okay. Um yeah so and then yeah so then those did we cover tires completely did did you yeah that was it's the it's the the conclusion is that it, they are very important right that, that's what we can take away from it and then the other two items that we still have to cover were the camelbacks uh down the front of the tri suit which we saw you have in in sub seven for example and i mean that might have been just for cooling but it's actually some, another thing that i tested was to put some like my nutrition in the tri suit and it was more very marginally faster than, than not having anything so i'm curious about that one and uh, then the, the final thing was the uh the animal sailfish hydration system uh it's kind of backs down the front i think it, it's just a, it's a very efficient place to put hydration we knew we needed quite a bit so i think we had two it was either two liters or two and a half liters and if you put that anywhere on the bike give or take you, you're going to take a drag hit uh and the front tends to be Relatively neutral. I don't know if you can recall, I'm trying to remember who the rider was actually back in the, the 90s or the noughties who had a camel back down the front of their skin suit. And of course, the UCI rule changed to say you can only have it on, oh. the, front, on the back. Was it Michael Rogers even who did it? I, d- I do not know. I don't recall yeah. this. Uh, I'd have to check that. But yeah, there's a, there's a UCI rule that says if you have a camel back, it can only go on your back, not on your front. And mm-hmm. I think that was one of the reasons why. Um, yeah, it's, it's an improvement. Um, I can't recall the numbers off the top of my head for what the camel back was, to be completely honest. Uh, but it, it just was the very logical conclusion of, of cooling. It's easy to get to. Uh, we don't have to put bottles over, all over the bike. Um, yeah. and we can cavil, carry two, two and a half liters, which is basically what we needed for the majority of the race. So that was, yeah, fairly sensible. And then the, the sailfish, uh, that actually came from a guy, uh, a Swiss aerodynamicist guy called Marco Manny, who I was introduced to through another friend, Martin Tough Madsen. I don't know if Martin's been on your, on your podcast, actually. No, he hasn't. No, uh, but yeah, I'm aware of him. Yeah, he's he's a really interesting guy. So he, he introduced Marco. Marco's been a legend in a lot of respects, does a lot of area development for his own benefit. And um, this was one of the things that he was he was testing. And then I did a bit more testing. I was like, yeah, there's, there's something in that. And it seemed like a no-brainer for, for what we were going to race there. So he knocked up 10 of them at, at short notice and, and we ran them. It's, it's It varied person to person. We've done quite a few different tests on different riders since then. Um, on Marco, it was quite your sensitive, so it was a good thing at high your. Whereas on me, it was a better thing at low your, and not so much at high your. I think it depends a lot on on the on your back shape, on the size. Um, there's a lot going on behind your back. There's a lot of wakes being shed, and effectively you're just trying to disrupt the vortices there. So vortex drag uh, behind a cylinder is probably something like eighty percent 
also causes about 80% of the drag on, on a cylinder. So if you can disrupt those water seas, then you can reduce the drag pretty meaningfully. Uh, but it does depend on, yeah, rider shape, hit width, speed, your angle, <laughs> everything <laughs> just comes down to it. But it, it seemed, on most people, it seemed to be a benefit. So it was a brainer yeah. to put them across all the guys. Yeah. And what, what would you compare it to in terms of the average uh, magnitude of improvement? Uh, is it like, are we talking something very marginal or is it some somewhat substantial? Uh, if you know, like maybe compare it to another component, I don't know, calf guards, is it better or like a, as, as important as calf guards? <laughs> so Marco's data, I think it was neutral at zero degrees of yaw. And then at 10 degrees of yaw, it was, I think it was like three or 4% drag reduction. So it's really substantial, whereas some of the other guys are talking more like one or two percent. But it's still, yes, yeah, a few watts. Um, yeah, and then you can obviously use it for yeah hydration or uh, tool storage, etc. Worst case, you're talking it's going to be neutral. Best case, you've got an error gain and you've got all your storage there at the same time. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, let me just see if there were any other. Yeah. So, are you working on any any projects within aerodynamics uh, in Watchshop or or in Ineos at the moment that you? Uh, that you can or want to share details on? <laughs> I guess I'm always working in projects in any else. The problem is I can't always talk about them. Um, probably can talk about where my interest lies right now, which is more yep. towards tire dynamics. Uh, that's not to say I'm not focusing on it on the aero. I definitely do. But um, the second most important thing is, is rolling resistance, but your tires do a whole lot more than that. So, I'm just trying to understand a lot more and spending a lot of time reading back from the university notes and lectures and uh, trying to speak to a lot, a lot of people who, especially things like MotoGP and, and motorbike racing, who deal with bicycle style dynamics a lot more because they're quite different to, to four wheel to car dynamics and, and how you generate tire grip and what happens inside a tire. Just to understand more than anything, I, I don't think in the first instance I'm going to find a huge amount of performance there, but I think to understand what's happening uh, so what happens when you corner? What happens when you break? What happens when a tire goes over a rough surface? How is it transmitting all that vibration? Where's that that going to? I'm just trying to understand a bit more. Um, I think it's always a general thirst for knowledge, but it seems like such a, an area that is not not well explored, at least not within the world of cycling. People just assume tires are these things that you need to, to roll over the surface, but there's so much more that goes on. Most of your forces resolve through a tire, but it's... It's poorly understood. And to be honest, they're poorly understood even in motorsport. They, they have models to match the data, but they've never truly fully explained tyres. Um, even in the world of Formula 1, they're quite limited on what they're allowed to do. So they take, for example, like photos of contact patches to understand they at different loads and different rolls and steer angles, etc. But it's uh, they're hard things to, to understand. And I think that's, that's quite an exciting area to, to dig into. Yeah. Uh, and final uh, question here in this uh, segment is if if I'm an amateur triathlete and I'm, I've never really done any aerodynamic optimization, but I've now, after listening to you, I've identified that I want to improve my performance by going after some yeah, aerodynamic optimization. What, what is my next step? What would you recommend I do? <laughs> uh, shall I have a plug and just say read my book? <laughs> that might be a good, good one. Uh, but effectively, I think, well, the process of reverse engineering is what I recommend a lot of people who are starting this. So you, you need to have a goal. You can't just like come along and say, I want to get faster. You need to actually say, I want to win this race or I want to ride this far in an hour. Or I want to 
do whatever it might be, but have a goal and then start to break that actually down into what that means. And it might mean taking some time to understand a little bit more about cycling, cycling physics, aerodynamics, et cetera, but simply breaking it down. What powers do you need to do? What drag coefficients? How fast you need to corner? How much fast do you need to, well, what do you need to weigh to, to climb Von 2 in an hour or whatever it might be? Just breaking it down into those base components. So trying to understand it in first principles, but then also then, assessing the kind of different tools you have. So do you have a coach? Uh, are you uh, on a forum and you can discuss different ideas with people? Do you have an engineering mate who wants to, to get stuck in with the project? Have you read different books on it? Uh, there's a, a lot of knowledge and information out there, but like what do you have access to? And then start to build and develop those kind of tools to improve all of those metrics. So whether it's physiology, your, your nutrition, your training, uh, your race execution, your race plan, et cetera, your aerodynamics, what can you improve? How can you improve that? Is it track tests? Is it field tests on the road through things like Chung Method? Is it going to the wind tunnel? And try and develop all those tools and putting a plan in place to do that in the time frame you need. So if you've got six months to your goal, when do you need to improve your position by? How much you need to be improving your physiology by? By what point? When are you going to go and practice your execution plan and having that plan and going through and actually executing it and trying to at least loosely stick no not loosely genuinely stick to the plan and just at the same time be ready to change that on the fly because nothing will ever truly go to plan you will have ups and downs but i think always referring back to where you need to be getting to what tools you've got and how to keep moving forward and never just accept a backward step of oh this didn't work out it was wrong and cast it aside because you probably did it for good reasons and i think it's just yeah the, the flow of any project is, has highs and lows. Um, I guess as well on the, on the same step is just trying to enjoy the entire thing. So many people get into this and get so immersed in trying to achieve a goal, they forget like the process is the enjoyable part. Like, don't get me wrong, it's fun to go and win a bike race and you finish and like, that's enjoyment in that moment. But at the same time, if you just spent the six, last six months being miserable, then it probably wasn't worth it to be completely honest. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fantastic answer. And uh... And uh, yeah, you're, you, you asked if you should pl- plug your book. You didn't plug it properly. Uh, what, what is the name of your book? <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I really should learn this. I'm, I'm pretty bad at actually the plugging of it. But uh, it's start at the end, uh, how reverse engineering can lead to success. So yeah. if you have a Google, it's uh, on Amazon, it's on WatchUp, uh, there's a few different places. Yeah, I, I, I got it on Audible already. It's in my queue. I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm definitely looking forward to, to listening to it. And uh, and I think that your answer there kind of uh, described what the book is about uh, in as a good overview. Or is there anything else you would like to add about uh, what yeah who the book is for or anything like that? I think it's it's for anybody who has a goal, something they want to achieve. Obviously, my background is is sports and engineering, and I think a lot of what I put into the book was around that. But I think there's also enough like, anecdotes from from general life, whether that's from business or home life there's there's a lot there's a lot of applications for it and i think it generally fits any given project where you have a goal and a time frame and you have finite resources and you just want to figure out the best way of tackling that and building a plan and building all the tools and and going ahead to achieve it so yeah it could be you're starting a new business could be you want to build a shed in your garden to, to set your turbo up i don't know there's there's many different areas that you could apply it to and hopefully yeah, it's fairly universal um it's not too long a read it's not super techy super nerdy super engineering based it's hopefully quite broad and quite easy to understand 
yeah now i'm excited i definitely want to want to listen to it uh soon so uh let's move into a segment of listener questions so so these ones can be kind of rapid fire if there's any one of these questions that you want to elaborate on then feel free but other than that like you can also choose to just take a sentence or two to to answer these so these came from uh instagram uh, where i posted and asked for questions and uh yes let's start with best stretch to become more aero <laughs> uh Anything around neck, shoulders, traps, probably primarily, but also glutes and hamstrings. And uh, how much what difference can there be between two TT frames, all else being equal? Uh, current generation, at, let's say 50k an hour, probably no more than six to eight watts. Seven to ten. Seven to ten. Jesus, that probably fits quite well. Not, not much. Through old generation frames, you could find 30 or 40 watts. Hmm. Is there any one change you think everyone on a TT or tri bike should make? Oh, anyone? Um, that's quite a hard question. I don't. I don't think there's anything universal that I would change across yeah. everyone's position. Uh, sorry, I can't answer that one easily. And what is the craziest thing that you did in the early days in the name of Aero? <laughs> there's one I mentioned the other day actually. Uh, Try to. I tested it in the wind tunnel, but then couldn't ride on the track, which was uh, basically crossing my arms over. So <laughs> um, it was it was a good thing, just unridable. Yeah. Uh, any gains from sizing up your TT bike? Mm, I don't think it's worth uh, the hassle. There's very little in that, to be completely honest. It depends. If, if a bike's been designed in a certain frame, then it's probably been scaled and may, may not be optimal outside of its design frame size. But I, yeah, it's absolutely minimal. I think there's... If you're going to drop another few thousand pounds on any freight, there's probably better ways to spend that money. Yeah. And I think this next one you can't uh, answer, but I'm going to ask it just to, to ask it. And you can say pass. Uh, best off-the-shell skin suits for 45 kilometers per hour speeds. Yeah. I, probably, I, I can't easily answer skin suit questions, uh, yep. unfortunately, with uh, the with, uh, current arrangement and, of the team. And is, is the next one also in that category? Tell the story of double-layer skin suits. Yeah, unfortunately so. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, are Ineos still using widths slash spacings slash heights from Ogiano's 2020 paper? I have no idea what this question is about. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is also a skin suit question. Um, okay. I'm sure people will get Googling that, but no, yeah. unfortunately you can't answer that. Are shaved legs faster? Is there any potential benefit in covering your legs in something slippery like oil? Uh, I've seen some data that suggests it's faster, but uh, I don't think it's super clean cut. I don't think there's a huge amount there. Covering your legs. Was it uh, Lotto Sudal did that back in 2017, 2018? They had some hydrogel thing. I think they developed it with Burt Block. And maybe it wasn't Lotto Sudal. It would have been a lot of jumbo. Um, so, yeah, there, there is benefit in covering your legs in something. Probably not slippery like oil. You'd want something that creates a bit of turbulence. Uh, but on a macro scale, yeah. Well, I mean, one, it's not UCL legal now. But two, it would be quite hard to do. Hmm. And uh, tri-spoke or deep front wheel? I'm a fan of tri-spokes, especially nowadays when moving to disc brakes. So it's a little bit easier to deal with all the, the forces in the wheel. What made your our nimble shoe, our, our record, I assume, nimble shoes more aero than the regular model? <laughs> they were more aero. <laughs> uh, so where were they? Did you have customized customized shoes from Nimble? Yeah, so Nimble have a, a really cool program called Expect, which basically you can design your own shoe within the realms of what they can produce. Um, so it's 
you can have everything from a fully custom carbon shoe, like a lot of people have seen out in the real world or the brands have done it, like Antelope and Simmons and yeah, they, they can do that. And, or you could have something that kind of meets more in the middle. So I'm not a fan of full carbon shoes. I've had a set previously and I found them incredibly uncomfortable. I definitely couldn't have ridden an hour in them. I could barely ride for a few minutes on the turbo. And yes, I ended up with kind of a hybrid between their air model and what you would typically say is their expect model, which is the full carbon. So I had um, like a leather upper and it was just changing around the shape of, of the shoe. Nothing like super drastic, but it was a, a small 1% improvement or so. Is getting the armrests narrower always better? Mm, to a point. I'd say the, the, there will be points beyond which you're probably not going to gain anything, or at least very little. Um, and like we said earlier on, there are some trade-offs around comfort, etc. But I would always say take the aerodynamics and train to develop the comfort and the stability back. Uh, but most of the time, yes, in that direction, but not always slant. Flat back or arched back? <laughs> I don't think it matters, whoever's fastest. Uh, I think people historically have got obsessed with needing a flat back. And there's riders with curved backs, riders with flat backs. Some are fast, some are slow. And I don't think it really correlates that well with whether someone's quicker or not. Sorry, lower drag or not. Mm. Uh, what hand position is fastest? <laughs> it depends on the rider. I've played about quite a bit with hand positions, to be honest. Uh, they're not very sensitive with me, which is quite frustrating. Whereas Toff Madsen, he played around with a lot of different things and he found some good gains. I remember Harry Tanfield back in the day. He had a position, I think he called it the Keith Murray, which is basically like kind of two hands like um, pointed forward. So having all your fingers and thumbs touching. Uh, and that was a reasonable improvement. I think it was one, one and a half percent quite repeatable. Um, but it does depend on the rider. Some people like the, the hands overlapping each other like Wiggins did. Um, that test fast on some people, but that was pretty terrible on myself. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a fortune that's just one you've got to test. And uh, is, if the tailwind is faster than you, is it worth making yourself as big as possible? Yeah, it's always a fun question. At what point does uh, a tailwind have to, uh, or what speed does the tailwind have to be for you to sit up? And effectively it is once the tailwind speed is equal to your wheel speed or your ground speed. Uh, but uh, it's going to have to be a significant amount greater than that for you to get a net benefit in the sense of, well, if, if it's, a, let's say you're riding at 40k an hour and it's a 50k an hour tailwind pure, so you've got effectively 10k an hour tailwind behind you, but that actually means the amount of aero drag force pushing you forward isn't all that great at 10k an hour. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely worth it, but it's, it's going to be so minimal in, in the real world of speeds where it's going to happen. Uh, it's never going to happen, really. I don't yeah. think anyone's riding at those kind of speeds. And how many centimeters is your seat behind your bottom bracket? <laughs> Random niche question. Uh, 5.2 centimeters. Right. Uh, there were quite a few other questions as well. And I think most of them came from you reposting this this story. So thank you for that. You have a lot of fans that are really interested in, in Aero. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed enjoyed this segment, actually. It was, it was really cool. Uh, let's so. now do the, uh, the rapid fire questions. And I have a, a set of news uh, questions because you've done these before in your previous uh, appearance on the podcast. So these are new questions. And the first one is, what's your favorite place to train? The velodrome. But there's a few that are different and good. I really like Barcelona Velodrome. It's like a real history and sense of atmosphere there. But I also love being back at Derby in Darvados, like such a cool velodrome. But I also have a lot of positive experience at Ballarat in Copenhagen, Denmark. So 
they're probably my three favorite velodromes: Derby, Barcelona, Ballarat. And uh, what is a bucket list race or event that you would want to do? Uh, one that I've spoke about quite a bit is uh, Land's End John O'Groats. So it's a big thing in the UK, which is basically the most southerly point to the most northerly point. And um, Michael Broadwith has the record currently, and it's pretty damn fast. But I think that'd be a fun thing to do one day. How how long does that take? What is the record currently? Oh, it's like 42 hours, I think. Mm. So it's, yeah. it's basically two days on your TT yeah. bike. Mike yeah. was on, a, he had a neck brace on by the end. His neck completely failed and he still got the record. Wow. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. What was his speed roughly? Uh, I'm going to have to Google that one, but I want to say it was 35k an hour, maybe something mm. like that. Yeah. I'd have to check. Yeah, uh, that, that sounds crazy. And uh, finally, if you could acquire expert level in any skill in the world for yourself in an instant, what would it be? Uh, Python coding. <laughs> I think I'd find that yeah. or the ability to design and manufacture a circuit board mm. with all the everything, all the, the bells and whistles. One of those two, something really nerdy. Because I find that actually genuinely quite useful. But it's yeah. quite time consuming to learn both. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Dan. Where can listeners find you? And also feel free to remind them of the, your book again so they can check it out. Uh, so I'm on Twitter, Dan Biggles, Instagram, I think also Dan Biggles. Um, I'm not on any other social media publicly. <laughs> Don't, not yet, anyway. Maybe on Mastodon if Twitter decides to, to crash in the near future. Uh, you can find uh, my book on shopforwatts.co.uk as, w- as well as all the other watch shop components and things. Um, yeah, always open for people messaging on whatever social media platform. Um, can't always answer everyone's questions, but I try when I, whenever people do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Uh, it's been great to chat to you and I hope to do it again another time. Awesome. Thanks again. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we'll have links to Dan's social media as well as the WhatsApp website. Remember to check out Dan's book, Start at the End, and also the previous episode that I did with Dan, which was in episode 229. Also, uh, we mentioned the episode that I did with uh, Jacob Tipper. That was a two-part episode in episodes 344 and 345. And uh, the first of that was uh, mainly about the sub-7, sub-8 project, which he uh, did talk about a bit in this episode. But we go into detail on that with Jacob so so those are episodes worth listening to related to this one and I will also link to the Aero episode archive or it's more like a search uh, Aero search on uh, scientifictriathlon.com but uh, through that link you can find a bunch of episodes related to aerodynamics Next Monday, I interview another repeat guest, and uh, this time it will be Olav Alexander Bu, the coach of Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden. At the moment of recording this segment, the grand final in Abu Dhabi hasn't yet taken place, but I will be interviewing Olav right after that, and uh, then we will be able to see and discuss how Christian and Gustav did at the highest level of short course triathlon right at the end of an amazing year focused on long course triathlon. Super interesting to see. I have a massive list of questions and topics that I want to discuss with Olav, and I know this is an interview that people will be very excited about so if you want to build up towards that interview be sure to check out the interview that i did with him uh back in december of 2020 when pretty much nobody knew who he was i think that was episode number 264 and that is a great starting point to then really enjoy the interview that uh, we will have out next week 
Before we finish, I want to remind you to check out our training camp in Mallorca at the end of March. You can find all the information on scientifictriathlon.com and you can email me if you want to learn more and register. Uh, it will be an amazing week of training in one of the best places in the world to train. Mallorca has uh, a fantastic range of options for training. The cycling there is stunning. We will have a pool right at the hotel, an outdoor pool, 25 meter pool where we do our swimming. Uh, and uh, it is just a great opportunity to train with a bunch of like-minded people and build great fitness ahead of your 2023 season. So check that out. And I hope that I will see you in Mallorca. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Roca that you can find on roca.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day -day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roca order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft life.